Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Jill Gorman-Rao. Jill, I'm so excited to have you here with me. Jill, I think most people know you very well in beauty, but would love to hear a little bit about your background. Like, how did you first kind of come into this crazy world where you've worked, you know, you've worked at L'Oreal, you've worked at Revlon, you've worked at all the big players. So I'm wondering how you first got started. Thank you so much for having me, Priya. It's such a it's such a lovely thing to be able to be with you. Um, so how did I get started? Well, I had a bit of a full start. I thought I wanted to be in finance, but finance didn't want me. So I sort of went back to the drawing board in my final year of university and thought, what is it that I really love? What is it? What are, If you're going to go and do a job and it's likely to be a career, not a job, what is it that you love as an individual? And, you know, I grew up in the consumer goods world. My mother was a fashion buyer. My father worked for Guinness, which became Diageo. And I, I knew that I loved fashion and beauty and, and lifestyle. And then I just looked around. I, I did internships and I looked at who would, uh, in terms of companies and brands, who would be able to offer a platform for an entry into the uh, into the industry and then a growth in the industry as well. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough in my final year of university to secure a place on the L'Oreal Graduate Training Scheme in 1999 in, in the UK. Um, and you, at that point, just applied for a function. So you applied for marketing or you applied for sales or finance. You didn't apply for a specific di- division or certainly a specific brand. And um, I started at, at L'Oreal, and I will never forget, the 27th of September, 1999. Um, funny how some dates will just stay with you forever, right? And I was, they went around a table and said, these are the divisions you're going to. And I was... I was handed coiffeur, which is now known as professional products division. Um, and that was, of course, the, the division um, that uh, markets to and supplies professional products to the hairdressing industry. And I I just, I, I knew, I think you know in your bones when you go into something significant in your life, in whatever part of your life, that whether it's going to be a good thing or not, you know, the, the details might not be known to you, but your instinct is is generally right, I think. And my instinct was that this would be something that I would really enjoy and that this would be a company that I would hopefully do well in if I worked hard. And, and that proved to be true. So I found myself in beauty, having not found myself in another industry um, and have loved it ever, ever since. I mean, it's such a dynamic industry that changes so often that it's it's never the same right Priya I mean I think you probably see that from your perspective as well Jill tell me a little bit about L'Oreal because you were there for such a long time and I know (laughs) that you know L'Oreal I think we talked about this last time is like it's it's born and bred marketers I think at its core I mean their CEO their executive leadership which I think you're very much applying to your new role at Keir Weiss yes I think that's right so I, I I've actually worked at L'Oreal twice I am the career definition of of don't go through a door backwards because you don't know what will happen to you. So after after five, six years working at L'Oreal, having transferred from the professional products division to the luxury division, I left and I to go and head up the marketing for Yves Saint Laurent Beauté, which was then owned by the Gucci Group. And they moved me to New York and then L'Oreal bought all of the long-term licenses for the beauty brands within the Gucci Group. So I was back in to L'Oreal and... I was just very fortunate that I'd had such a good experience there the first time that they were happy to have me back. 
Um, and, you know, I think L'Oreal is an extraordinary place to learn. No culture is perfect. Uh, no, no company stays the same forever. And, uh, you know, the days of staying at one company for your entire career, whether that's in beauty or engineering or finance, they're obviously long gone. And, and we see that with the amount of hopping around that happens within people's careers. But L'Oreal taught me the very core fundamentals of, of, of marketing and business and of leadership through the lens of marketing. Because Priya, as you're absolutely right, you know, the leadership there by and large, I mean, right the way through to the CEO um, and every CEO that there's been has come through through the marketing, has come through the marketing channel there. So it really, it really taught me a lot. And, and I think sometimes what people don't realise about the company, given that it is, you know, the number one beauty company in the world, is how entre- entrepreneurial you can be there, how creative you can be there. Because I think sometimes there may be the impression of, well, if it's a very big company and very big brands, how could you possibly be creative in a role? How could you possibly change things? And my experience was that you get thrown in at the deep end. It's a kind of sink or swim environment in the best possible way. But once you prove yourself, you're off to the races. I mean, you can really, you can really be, um, you can really be very creative and very entrepreneurial as long as you're doing your job, as long as you're, as long as you're providing results. But I tend to think that's probably the same in most places. As long as you're doing the job and 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 the fundamentals, then uh, then the the world becomes your oyster in terms of what you can do. Jill, you know, just prior to Kier Weiss, you were at Revlon, which would arguably some say is one of the more corporate sides of the beauty CPG business. And I'm just wondering, you know, being there for the years that you were there in such a, you know, exciting time because, you know, Debbie Perlman was CEO, the yes. first female CEO. You're obviously the first C- female CEO um, at Keir Weiss. I'm actually not. Oh. I'm actually not because um, I took the role of CEO from Kirsten, oh. who was our CEO and, and our founder. So I would not I would not want to take that, that claim. I'm the first CEO of the business outside of the founder. But, uh, but you're right about being at, at Revlon at a really exciting time because Debbie Perlman is became the CEO while I was there and I was working very closely with her and and I have a little you know bandwagon about the fact that she doesn't get enough credit for being the first ever uh, CEO of a publicly traded beauty company which I think is a bit of a bonkers statistic given that that happened in the last three years. So yeah, it was a very different culture, you know, an American-based culture as opposed to a a French-based culture. Um, I was back in the professional division running that, um, working on beautiful brands, Um, very entrepreneurial and a very different set of circumstances for that business, Um, but working with great people. And And it's always down to the people, isn't it? The people, the people are everything and the brands, the brands are everything. And I think as, as leaders, it's, it's recognizing those gifts and, and bringing them out of people in whichever culture you're working in. So what made you decide to move to the indie side of things? And, you know, obviously Kira Weiss has been around for a while, but it's not a Revlon or a L'Oreal. It's, it's such a good question because I'm sure, I'm sure when lots of people have made that move, there's lots of different reasons. For me, they were very personal in the, ten- the sense that there was about me and stretching me as, as a leader. And then there's the indie side of the definition of indie being independent. And, and for me, I'd run very big businesses for, for, for other people, for other brands and very happily so all around, around the world. And I, and I really wanted the personal test and, and the next leap to do that 
in a way where you don't have that big structure around you. Um, and the advantage of that being, can you really move faster? Can you really affect change quickly? Can you really drive a brand in a way that feels uh, more entrepreneurial, that side of things? And of course, the big test of becoming a CEO. That is, that's a very, it's a very different role that frankly, nobody can prepare you for, and certainly not in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. And, and then there was, and then there was the independent side, as I mentioned, which is, you know, you have, you have the control and you have the, you have the ability to do everything and set strategy, but you don't have the support that you would necessarily have in a big cultural uh, organization or a very large organization. So when the Wi-Fi goes out or the air conditioning breaks or, you know, freight turns out to be as expensive on a boat as it is on a plane, you don't have the people around you to solve those things for you because you're smaller, you're independent. And so it's the intellectual challenge of, of doing all of those things. But the principal reason that I moved was for the brand. I mean, honestly, Priya, you know, there were there are lots of independent brands out there. And I, you know, I'd, I'd considered a couple of things. But it, it really, there's a whole lot of things that have to come together. And the leap has to be the leap rather than a leap. And for me, the leap was all about Kia Weiss and the potential of Kia Weiss. What do you think you could bring to the brand? Because, you know, I think it's an interesting, it has an interesting place in the indie brand space in the sense that it's not one or two years old, it's not five years old. And many of the things that Kia Weiss started with refillability, sustainability, natural, but with performance are things that brands today are trying to, you know, edge you out on. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, Kirsten, when she founded the brand, you know, a decade ago, as you referred to, was the absolute very first person, um, the very first creator to be able to develop certified organic, high performance refillable, sustainable products. And now we see a decent amount of activity within that space. Now, we don't see in certainly the colour category any other activity in certified organic. We we really, we see a lot in natural. We see some in, in clean, however we define that. Um, but certified organic, which is our principle and our philosophy, we really stand alone. You're quite right, we're seeing a lot more activity in refillable and sustainable. And that's fantastic because that's the way it should be. We have one planet and we need to leave it better than we found it. And as consumers and as brand leaders, we need to work towards that. But it needs to be a sincere goal. And quite a lot of the activity that we're seeing in this space is a little performative in terms of a little product here, a little press release there. Whereas our underpinning and what Kirsten set out to do was to ensure that every part of our brand is sustainable with a commitment to the environment. Now, are we perfect? No, we're not. We're on a journey just like everybody else is. And, you know, technology changes all of the time, but it really is the underpinning of our brand. And so it is, for me, it was, can I bring the structure and the strategy of a large business and my creative side to help grow this business? That's what I wanted to bring to it. Jill, tell me, what did you think the opportunity was? Because, you know, I have my thoughts and I think it's a beloved brand, but is it awareness? Is it more marketing? Is it distribution? 
I think it's all of that. I think you're right. It is an absolute beloved brand by those that know. But that number is relatively small in the grand scheme of things. So I often say that no, those that know love. There are just not enough of those that know. And I think that, so I think when you talk about the opportunity, it's brand awareness, it's storytelling, it's distribution, it's innovation, making sure that we are playing and bringing a better certified organic high performance offering into each of the relevant consumer categories. I think it's doing that responsibly and making sure that we stick to our principles and the brand tenants as as we do that. And I think that there are a number of factors that are uh, that are helping us along the way. And one of those is consumer sentiment, right? One of those is the fact that as consumers, we are more concerned about what we're buying, I think, across every category, whether that's fashion, products for the home, beauty. Um, I think that we want to make sure that our products are a, going to be fabulous. I mean, you should love products that you buy. You should use them and wear them and reuse them and replace them because you love them so much. Um, but you also, I think we're seeing a, a consumer sentiment, which is, is it good for me? Is it good for the planet? And we started to see that with the adoption in our diets. And now we're starting to see that adoption in terms of how we feel about the way that products are manufactured and what's in them. Um, in, in our beauty regimes. And of course, certified organic high performance is the future, certainly as far as I'm concerned, and it was the future for Kirsten when she when she dreamed this and created this. So it's all of those things, Priya. It's it's a rare, it's a rare gift to work on a brand which has the depth of 10 years experience, but has all of the levers still to play and consumer sentiment going in the same direction. I've got to believe that's a once in a career experience. Well, it's all about timing, right? And I mean, I, I arguably, I would say that that has gotten more, caught on more fervor during the pandemic. So I'm wonder, I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, I know that you are sold in luxury retail, but you also had a pretty significant D2C climb this last year, right? Well, yeah, we really have. Yeah, we really have. And so, I mean, I very much believe in both sides of the coin. I very much believe in a really healthy direct-to-consumer business through through KiaWeiss.com. And, and I'm a big believer as well in a physical experience, as long as that physical experience is a great experience. And I think there's two parts to this, which is what happened to consumers during the pandemic. I, obviously, we saw the explosion of e-commerce and we saw people people entering e-commerce as a route to purchase product who'd never considered that before. The, the diehard, I will never buy a piece of clothing, a beauty item that I can't try on, that I can't test. That evacuated, that left town because of just necessity, right? You're just necessity. And then we saw, so we think, you know, and I think I'm not the first person to say this and I won't be the last, that the pandemic just vastly accelerated that sea change in consumer behaviour. Um, and and it accelerated into all of these all of these different areas, because to say that digital wasn't growing pre-pandemic would be would be wildly incorrect. And now I think that we're seeing that consumer behaviour, which was, I think, a much more thoughtful consumerism during the pandemic, translate into fingers crossed, we're nearly there, post-pandemic behaviour. I do believe that consumers, particularly in beauty, during the pandemic, really felt strongly about, do I need this? 
Am I going to love it? Am I really going to use it? And I think that whole idea of buying an eyeshadow or a lip gloss, using it a couple of times and throwing it in a shoebox in the back of your closet has really sort of, it's, it's really, it's really not cool. It's really not chic. I think that the idea of waste is a bit of an anathema to people and not least because simply the financial pressure that people were under with the pandemic, furloughing, reduced incomes, etc. So I think we're seeing that thoughtfulness of purchase post-pandemic. We're nearly there, I believe. And we're certainly seeing that as stores reawaken. Our head of retail sales has done a store visit in LA two weeks ago, store visits in San Francisco last week, and the stores are buzzing. People are coming back, but they're bringing that thoughtfulness and that desire for an amazing experience into store with them while still absolutely loving the convenience and the personalization of D2C, I think. What do you think your split is right now between, you know, and if you can tell me, Jill, you know. I can tell you. Our split our split is 50-50 here today. 50% D2C, 50%, 50% wholesale. And we're in, we're in, we're in, we've doubled the business in wholesale year to date and we've tripled the business, tripled the business in D2C year to date. Um, so it's not that we are, it's our, 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 our shift to 50% of our business in D2C is not because our wholesale business isn't performing. We're, you know, rising by, a rising tide lifts all boats. So would you say that, you know, increased distribution is a priority for you in the next year? Or do you think it's really about taking a more measured approach? Because so many people are like opening retail accounts to, as a marketing lever. Yeah, um, I love measured. I'd like us to be really fabulously productive post-pandemic where we are. I'm not anti-new distribution at all, but I think it comes back to the foundation of our brand, which is really thoughtful, and to make sure that where we do open new distribution, it makes sense in terms of partnership. It makes sense in terms of it being an incremental consumer, an incremental opportunity. And that we are also, you know, set up as a business to to be able to really drive new distribution. I think small companies can often make the mistake of opening distribution that they're actually not ready for yet. We are ready for new distribution, but I'd want to be very mindful that it was mutually advantageous to both the partner and to Kia Weiss before pressing before pressing go on that. Um, so I'd say I'd say measured Priya. I do believe in new distribution, um, but I think it has to be right and it has to be right for everybody. That sort of gold rush of just opening doors, that doesn't work. That just It just doesn't work. And particularly not in the climate that we're seeing now. What would you say about the larger luxury space? Because, you know, you definitely fall within that. And, Absolutely. you know, there aren't a lot of luxury, you know, organic options. And there are not a lot of luxury clean options if we want to go there as well especially in in color cosmetics. So I'm wondering, you know, there is this consolidation happening right now. We're seeing it with Sephora and Kohl's, Ulta and Target, you know, even a, abroad we're seeing that, you know, people are choosing to go to cult beauty instead of going to Harrods, you know, like they're not necessarily wanting to have all those doors. So for you guys, like, what do you think that means for the brand? Like, do you think that like, your positioning and pricing is is going to stay the same? Or do you think you have to kind of pay attention to what's going around? around you? Well, I, I think our positioning absolutely stays the same. There will be no, there will be no evolution in the Kiawise positioning of certified organic, high performance, gorgeously flattering, gorgeously flattering, and sustainable and commitment to the environment. 
that is that 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 is who we are. That is that was the way that Kirsten founded this brand. And fundamentally, as as a marketer, we stand alone. We absolutely stand alone within that positioning. And I think your assessment is right. There are in the luxury space, and I think that word luxury is a very interesting one now because does it really apply in its definition to brands that believe that they are playing in that space all the time? I don't know. You've got a ton of heritage brands. You've got a ton of designer brands, and we see more launches by designers all of the time. There's a there's a growing sort of cadre of, of makeup, uh, makeup artist brands. And of course, Kirsten was and is a makeup artist. So you could argue that we play in that space as well. Absolutely. And then there's this playing with clean. What does clean mean? Without regulation, it is impossible to define what clean means and what that end benefit is to a consumer. And then you have us. You have certified organic, makeup artist, absolutely luxury. I mean, the products, the packaging, the design-led aspect, the pricing, everything, every one of our touch points signals luxury in its truest point. So I think I think that the consumer is going to vote with their dollars over the next couple of years. We've seen massive changes in the industry in the last three, five, ten years. Huge brands that really dominated market share being chipped away at by new entrants. So many new brands from influencers, from celebrities. What's the staying power? What are the legs of those brands? Some of them will make it, some of them, some of them won't. And then you have to layer on top of that, who's really thinking digitally first? Who's really thinking about putting the consumer first? And if you sort of try to connect the dots between all of those things, I feel really good about where we are. And I really hope that the industry continues to pivot because what we all want is the best consumer experience. Would you say that your priorities right now is really about that storytelling element and really telling people, you know, preaching your gospel, whether it's, you know, Kirsten doing it herself on IG Live and talking about her makeup artist roots, or is it just via sampling on your website? And which I know you guys do digitally, which I think you're one of the very few that does that. Um, and we're doing that pre-pandemic. Like, what are those goals as you think about the rest of 2021 and into 2022, you know, for the brand? Because I know it is so much about awareness and storytelling and getting that that gospel again out there. That's absolutely right. And, you know, the way that we tell those stories has changed. I mean, it's certainly changed since 1999 when I entered the industry. And frankly, it's changed since 2009 and 2019. We're in a constant evolution. And I think what's critical for us is to tell our story and to do so through the right channels, the channels that are really relevant to our consumer in a way that is incredibly consistent. You know, quite often as marketers and brand leaders, we get bored of telling the same story, thinking that, well, because we've heard it so often, everybody's heard it so often. And that's not actually the case. Consumer who is living life on a scroll needs to see consistency from a brand to really understand what it is. And of course, that can be from your own storytelling. That can be from the use of influencers or people within the industry that can tell your story for you. So absolutely, Priya, our our greatest focus um, in terms of marketing is to increase 
brand awareness and to ensure that as we do that, we are telling our story consistently. And this is, you know, we, we're on a, a on a on, on a journey now with 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 paid media, with social media, with utilizing the right influencers that we haven't been able to do as a brand before. And then as I think about the other priorities, absolutely getting the product out there. Now, it's very interesting. Sampling when you are an environmentally responsible brand is a very interesting topic. Up to now, we've had individual sachet samples. We won't have those going forward. So our philosophy is going to be, and we've had beautiful mini lip lip glosses and the mini beautiful oils, and they give you multiple uses of a product. That's fine. As a CEO of a brand that's committed to the environment, I can live with us sampling something that the consumer gets the best experience to be able to use that multiple times. But can I live with a sample that goes out into the ether and it's a one-shot wonder? I'm not sure that that supports the core of our business. So what is the right philosophy and strategy for sampling? And then innovation. Let's make sure that we're playing where the really big consumer dollars are happening, right? Let's make sure that certified organic is not viewed as niche, that you as a consumer understand that you can have an amazing formula in all of those key categories. I say likely better than what you're currently using and really have your entire makeup and ultimately your entire beauty regime solved within within the world within the world of certified organic high performance. So moving from being a player in some categories and being very strong there to being a player in multiple categories, but again, thoughtfully, Priya, because what I... I have seen and what we have all seen in our industry is when brands are built on the churn of launches as opposed to establishing new product as core product in categories. So that's that's a really interesting challenge for us, but it's something that I think we can do. And that that would that would round out the focuses. I have so many questions, Jill. You know, first of all, you know, around the storytelling element, I'm wondering you know, do you think it's a detriment at all that, you know, everybody's talking about clean, everybody's talking about whatever that means. There's definitely backlash about whether it means anything um, from some of the biggest players who kind of invented it. But at the same time, like, you know, you're talking about one thing when all these other people are talking about something else. Do you think that may be a detriment at all when maybe the consumer is getting flooded with the stuff at Sephora or Ulta? Or do you think it allows you, you know, greater room to play because you aren't competing in the same way with those other brands? Well, I I, I obviously think the latter. I mean, that's not a, a wildly surprising answer because for me, it's very, very simple. As a consumer of beauty, you're only ever going to buy something if you know that it's going to work and you really want it to work. I mean, maybe that's a bit of a stretch. Maybe maybe there's been past purchasing, which is more frivolous, but certainly coming out of the pandemic, I think the majority of consumers want to know that that product is really fabulous. It's really high performance. So for me, the benchmark, the, the, the entry to the market is, is this a wonderful product? Because you can sell anything once, but selling it to the same consumer twice, that's when you've got a customer, right? And 33% of our transactions on kiawise.com in the first quarter of this year were return customers. So we really know that we can hook and loyalize. So once you know that you've got a great product, great. 
So what's the storytelling that's going behind it? What's the underpinning of it? I am genuinely on behalf of the brand focused on ensuring that we tell our story as opposed to trying to either support or defend somebody else's. We stand alone and that's great. Absolutely, there is an awful lot of conversation around clean. Listen, it's 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 dynamic. It's it's gonna, you know, these things are gonna, these things are gonna, these things are gonna evolve over time. So I think that the fact that we are so committed to what we are and the fact that our consumer comes back again and again to to, to buy from us just means I have to tell more consumers. Tell me about innovation because you know the hero product strategy is something that I, you know, I love talking about because everybody's launching way too much, in my opinion. But, you know, their business is made up of their core. Like you think about, you know, La Mer, it's creme de la mer. You think about, you know, Estee Lauder, it's that advanced night repair cream that they've been talking about for years. And I would say that for even indie brands today. So for you, like, where would you say your core is and where do you want to go? Oh, I mean, such a great question. Our core is complexion. Really, our core is complexion. You know what? What Kirsten, what Kirsten launched with the cream blush, um, which was one of the first products, and the cream foundation. Um, you know, we do beautiful skin, and because of the organic ingredients, the certified organic ingredients, because of the way that the product has been manufactured, we can statistically prove that after use of Kia Weiss product, your skin is better than it was before. The skin is so beautiful. It looks luminous. It looks gorgeously natural. And it continues It continues to improve the texture and the quality of skin with use. We have to take that and we have to make sure that we don't in any way um, chip away at that positioning while adding that same philosophy into other categories, making sure, as I said before, that we have a relevant and high performing, if not higher performing formula for a consumer that really wants to move to certified organic, not in any way compromise the performance in every category of makeup. Now, we're only represented in less than 50, 50% of categories of makeup right now. So we've got a long way to go before we end up on that hamster on a wheel problem of launching for the sake of launching because you need to anniversary. We've got so much to do over the next two to three years that it's so exciting. Last question for you, Jill. You know, I remember when I had Michelle on the podcast from Walden Cast, um, and, you know, they obviously took a majority stake in the business recently. Yes, they did. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, so much of the SPAC that they're building and that they've built is around this idea of what the new luxury customer wants. And arguably, I would say that is what Kier Weiss kind of built the brand on 10 years ago. And I'm just wondering how you think that's going to be amplified in, you know, the greater market i think i think the new luxury is is something that is is really important and it comes back to a word that i've used a lot through our lovely chat and i use a lot in the office which is about being thoughtful it is about products with a purpose that really feel right that fit a need that solve a problem and bring joy and there is a responsibility in that development to make sure that as we do that 
we are using the best ingredients and that every element that we can control within the supply chain and packaging is as responsible to the environment as possible. I think that for me, and I think that's where a lot of consumers are going, is that's luxury. To know something that you're using is going to work, that you're going to love it, and that it is doing its best to leave things better than they found them. That That's luxury. Luxury is not having everything all of the time. Luxury is having products that one loves and that one relies on and that one feels are a critical part of, of their day. And I'm really excited that at Kierwise, we've got such an amazing platform to continue to do that and to bring responsible, amazing products to the market. Jill, thank you so much for being here. This was such a great conversation. I feel like, you know, the the ideas that you're really pushing forward is where the industry should be and, and needs to be going. So thank you again. Oh, Priya, thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy chatting with you as always. And uh, and it's just it's just been lots and lots of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.